Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here in the studio to record a different kind of podcast. Wisconsin Lutheran College, like all universities, have suspended face-to-face education due to the spread of the coronavirus. Online education is the norm for a while, and so Wade and I, and now Dr. Mark Brown, have decided to team up and record some audio for our students in lieu of classroom lectures. It's not ideal, but we think our discussions will be better than hastily made videos in which students have to look at our ugly mugs as we drone on without the benefit of a live audience. If you're not a student, we hope that this will be beneficial to you as well. And although not exactly a classroom experience with visuals and lively discussion, we hope that these episodes will give you an insight into the type of fun we can have here at WLC. If you're a student, uh, we're calling this COVID-19 online learning. You're welcome to subscribe to all of this and then pick and choose which uh, class you need to you need to listen to and we'll put that in the title. Um, if you are already a subscriber and you're getting blasted with uh, a session after session, episode after episode, we do apologize. You can adjust those on your on your feed and only get the ones that you want. Uh, please don't unsubscribe because that is kind of important in the podcast world. So without further ado, we're here for Theology 421, Religion in America and Dr. Brown's going to lead us here, but hopefully uh, Wade and I will have something to offer, or if nothing else, it'll give us a kind of an atmosphere that's more like a classroom. Um, In fact, Wade will be distracted by his phone, and you can tell him to put his phone down, so it's like a live classroom kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) I tend to feel that when people are in college, they're free to fail, so if you want to look at your phone during my lecture, you just go right ahead. That's right. Judgment day is coming. (laughs) (laughs) No law there at all. No, right, right. right. So... um, Tell us what you want to talk about as you are uh, doing kind of this kind of a unique class, I think, religion in America, um, I think, for the for the general uh, university world and um, maybe even in our Lutheran uh, Lutheran situation that we take time to think about the history of religion specifically in the United States. Kind of a lot of interesting things. So go ahead. Where do you want to take us? Well, what I'd like to do is um, take an overview of what's going to be the second half of the semester. Uh, The course, as uh, Dr. Berg said, is Religion in America. It used to be called Religions in America, and I think that emphasized more that we're going to give everybody lots of handouts that say, we teach this and they teach that, and we still do a little bit of that, but that's a little bit less clear sometimes. Religion in America is going to allow us to look at how religion and American life interplay, too. So... The whole first half of the semester, it kind of neatly divides in half, although we have to hop around the book a little bit, uh, basically tells the story of religious groups, uh, Catholic and Protestant, although I guess you'd put Judaism in there too, who were largely formed and organized in Europe and sought to transplant themselves in the New World. Uh, Some of them came with clear religious ideals. Many other people came over here, like my own great-grandparents, running away from something. And then there were missionaries that came to try to find them. and um, That's a good way to put it. <laughs> well, well, it is true. I mean, yeah. Missouri, you know, came over on four or five ships together, and they wanted to keep their group intact. But um, my great-grandfather was a draft dodger and made me feel better, by the way, in the 1970s when I found that out, <laughs> unpopular war. And, and then our, our synod, among others, had all they could do to keep up with finding all the Germans. Well, other denominations have varying kinds of stories. 
some denominations were much better at understanding the American <coughs> environment, which is that the churches are competing with each other and uh, the rise of what is called voluntarism is going to happen where people can go where they want to go. Um, and so that, that sets the tone for the first half of the semester. And students are supposed to go visit churches and they can visit um, mainline churches, Methodist, Baptist, Episcopal, Catholic. If they're not Lutheran, they go to Lutheran. And as we say, sometimes as we go along, this denominationalism can be quite a burden and it's confusing to non-church goers because they say, you mean you're going to tell us how to get along with each other and you fight over everything? So what happens in the second half of the semester is that we look at different ways in which uh, people and leaders tried to bring divided Christians back together again. But what they tended to find out is they, did, they, they said, well, we're not all going to wake up one day and say, oh, the Presbyterians are right and we'll all be Presbyterians. And so instead, what they attempted to do was to find a certain, I hate the term, but common core, a certain core of beliefs that they could uh, agree around. And if they could agree around that core, then they would uh, decide in one way or another to agree to disagree on the rest of the topics. So I talk about revivalism and fundamentalism and evangelicalism in one giant lesson. That'll be the first one they'll, they'll get on, on um, online Tuesday without the benefit of my, well, I'll have notes on the bottom. But th there's a thread that runs through revivalism and fundamentalism and into evangelicalism, which is deliberately non-denominational. And I show them that famous quote from George Whitfield when he's in the first great awakening, when he says, he says, there's this picture of, of going into heaven and uh, the person asks, Father Abraham, are there any Methodists up there? Are there any Baptists up there? Are there any Arminians? They're just Christians. So Whitfield says, let's get rid of all these denominational lines. Typically, the mainline pastors didn't like it that their members went to revival services. But uh, revivalism developed into its own kind of a template where you kept the messages simple. Uh, over time, revivalism added much more um, enthusiasm and, and, and drama, such as the anxious bench and the simpler songs that people could remember and theatrics, which ultimately led to more of a, a Pentecostal or charismatic response. And um, it continued to develop and right down to Billy Graham. And uh, is Billy Graham going to be succeeded by his son Franklin or uh, by somebody else, T.D. Jakes maybe? But that revivalistic impulse has always worked its way through American religion. And the denominations sometimes have to fight it and sometimes buy into more of it than they realize. A sort of a parallel movement, again, looking for a common denominator, is um, um, fundamentalism, where Christians in the early 20th century says, well, what's left to believe? And over a series of about a decade, a series of articles and journals came out uh, sponsored actually by a union oil company magnate with a lot of money. And the question was, what's left to be a Christian? What things must you believe in order to be a Christian? And so their famous five points of fundamentalism had to do with the virgin birth of Christ, the literal miracles of Christ. Trickle down economics. Uh, different five points. <laughs> I listened to an economic discussion for 10 minutes on the radio before I realized he was talking about different five points than I was. Yeah. Um, the miracles, including the resurrection, um, uh, the uh, second coming of Christ. But then they said, we'll kind of disagree about the rest or at least not talk about them. And there's still a strong fundamentalist kind of impulse in some parts of American Christianity. 
In fact, sometimes I ask my students, well, do you think the WELS ought to really be the WFLS instead? Do we have fundamentalist tendencies? Now, you put revivalism and fundamentalism together, and you have the evangelical movement, which tends to be, tries to be less rigid than, uh, than uh, fundamentalism. I always like the definition. I think it was George Marsden who said, a fundamentalist is an evangelical who's angry about something. <laughs> and they've got a lot of things they can be angry about. Um, but the common denominator through all of them is a, a, a move away from denominational distinctives, uh, what some people have called the scandal of particularity, to find this sort of common core of religious beliefs. And there's a really lot of strong opinions in both directions from students. Uh, we have this giant megachurch in our neighborhood called Elmbrook. By far, the largest number of students who've gone visiting have visited that compared to any other church. Some of them come warned by their clergymen pastors that everything is going to be wrong with it and you're going to hate it. I hate to even have you go in the door, but if it's for an assignment, okay. Right. And some of them like it more than they thought they would. Some of their stereotypes turn out not to be true. But the most common comment I got from them is, I didn't feel like I went to church. Mm -hmm. And I say, does that mean you liked it or you didn't like it? And they'd have different messages. Some said, this was just a concert. I didn't feel like church at all. Another said it was great, not all that church stuff. Hey. Now, between us, I probably take less of a specific direction on what ought to be done than the worship classes here do. Mm -hmm. I, just, I just want you to listen. Mm -hmm. Then another common denominator movement is the entire uh, Pentecostal charismatic movement, which comes out of Methodist holiness movement in which some very earnest Methodists believe that if you really get the Holy Spirit, you'll get to the point where you don't sin. And uh, uh, we look at some of the holiness Christians, like James Dobson. But then out of that came um, the old Pentecostal movement, which was a, a separatist movement, that those who spoke in tongues would leave their churches and become separate, come ye out from among them and be ye separate. Whereas the um, charismatic movement is, uh, is more across Christianity, and um, it has infiltrated and affected, infiltrated into and affected lots of Christianity. In fact, you could even look at um, our own church body and look at the number of things that have kind of come into the church, even while we were saying we are opposed to the charismatic movement, um, that we're open to more expressions of emotion and different kinds of music and um, uh, a, a more of a contemporary approach in not wearing the gown. I mean, all these things were, were so forbidden uh, when I was your age and younger, and they've kind of been sort of taken in, co-opted. Well, and I think even somewhat formally, at, at the Missouri Senate had a, I think it was very small, but wasn't there a somewhat organized group of charismatics within the Missouri Senate at some point? I can't remember the exact acronym for their organization, uh, renewal something. Yeah. Um, I could be wrong, but I know even growing up uh, in Roman Catholicism, there was some of charismatic movement type stuff that was held by some or advocated by some within the, the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, there was one uh, church I remember, uh, someone I knew at the time, uh, probably about 10 miles west of where I grew up, uh, that had kind of a charismatic mass. I don't know that that was sanctioned by the archdiocese, but well, I think but it, it, I mean it's made its way into a fair amount of main, main, historically yeah. in mainline denominations. Yeah, I think you're talking about RIM, 
which was either that might be yeah. renewal in ministry or renewal in Missouri. I think one it might have been the, renewal in Missouri. Yeah. One of the things I remember, though, is that Concordia Fort Wayne's faculty came out with a pretty stringent paper opposing the Pentecostal movement or the charismatic movement. And at the same time, a student survey found like 75 or 80 percent of the students consider themselves charismatic. Huh. Mm-hmm. And, and there were stories then about it splitting congregations and you have... You had sometimes the Corinthian problem occurring all over again where it divided into the haves and the have-nots. In Wisconsin, I, I, I don't really know. In the mid-90s, I wrote a series of articles about uh, the Pentecostal movement. It was six articles, and I got a few criticisms from pastors that it was too much like you know, Christian century or something, I didn't take a side clearly enough. That's generally the criticisms I get. We couldn't tell what side you were on. <laughs> but um, I saw a pastor here who works with a lot of the, um, uh, goes to the hospitals and things like that. And he would, I'd bump into him and he'd say, I'm checking with my closet charismatics on how you're doing. So one month he'd say to me, oh, are they angry with you? <laughs> the next month they say, well, that was pretty fair, you know. So uh, Did but, you know, Mark, that I went to Pentecostal summer camp for two weeks. Wow. Didn't they do a couple of um, um, documentaries on some of those places? I mean, Jesus, it wasn't, it wasn't Jesus camp, bad, that's pretty brutal. There was, a, there was two factors. I was good friends with a Pentecostal pastor's son. Ah. We used to play basketball at their church and then uh, had a crush on the Pentecostal pastor's daughter. So wow, it seemed like a good place to go. But uh, it was a good experience. <laughs> they were nice. But uh, it was I was Roman Catholic at that time, and it was— not going to mass when you went to church—that was for sure. Wow! If you'd have, if you'd have really connected with one of those young women, they like you to reproduce a lot and not drink beer. So I would say you'd go <laughs> one for two. There. <laughs> uh, now, what comes up here in class? Sometimes it comes up in class, or it comes up individually. Is that this is a very um, Arminian and adult believer baptism movement, and of course we have some students who come to school here who find out when they get here that not every Christian church or all Christians baptized as adults so we Mm. we have conversations about that sometime um then when it goes a step farther and i'll stop there because i'm talking too much but it really is part of the common denominator movement but i guess we would call this homemade christianity and i right away take the chapter and i'll say now the chapter in the book says american made christianities and i'm going to disagree that most of them are christian not because i want to be mean or pick on mitt romney but when you look at the traditional documents of the church, mm-hmm. you know, Chalcedonian Christianity, the creeds, these leaders of Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, Christian science, essentially live as though those, those events never happened in history. They're trying to start all over again with who is Jesus and is there a trinity? And, and, and so I leave them outside the pale of Christianity. The, the book and my class kind of start from the inside and move out to the edges. And so by the, by the last class, I'm talking about the Church of Oprah and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, uh, 12-step groups as religion and atheism and agnosticism. But it's meant to be kind of a, a drone look at religion to move back and say, well, how did, how did they get here? And then when I talk about evangelicals, I do end by saying, you know, non-denominationalism is a, is a denomination mm-hmm. also. Right. And I put a picture of no-name stakes up there because I say this is a stake brand even though it says no-name. So so that's like a large part of the second half of the semester. And, of course, then students go visit some of these places. Some want to uh, hear people speak in tongues. 
And they're generally disappointed because the churches are not all that wild and woolly, even the ones that are Pentecostal. I show a video sometimes about snake handling, and nobody wants to be there. We don't have that this far <laughs> north. <laughs> so jump on in. Yeah. I, you know, we were just talking about this when I we had a, a session on my worship class, and I take a day, and I, I call it denominational considerations, right? Because, uh, and my whole point is lex arandi, lex credendi, that the way somebody worships is going to affect what they believe and vice versa. Theology 312, audio 001, uh, that went up the other day for those who want to listen. And what, what I do if I was a face, if we were doing a face-to-face is I draw on the board, okay, here's a column that's uh, Roman Catholicism, here's Lutheranism in the middle, for lack of a better way to put it, and here's more of your Protestant ones where we leave out the Orthodox there. And so it, it should be that it's just three columns, right? But then I put across Pentecostalism, fundamentalism, mm-hmm. confessionalism. I even put church growth, kind of a business model kind of there and maybe a demythologizing liberal whatever and you can find in every denomination and what i mean by denomination there is what's on the what's on the church sign lutheran catholic presbyterian or whatever you can find a pentecostal in all of those you can find a demythologizing liberal in all of them you can mm-hmm. find someone who's confessional in the sense that they believe in the confessions of their church right um and and then i say to them i'm sorry that you're going out into a world like this <laughs> where you can't go by the church sign sometimes. Right. And, and that's so unfortunate, but I think it helps them understand that there are movements that have nothing to do with the church sign that are just as important to figure out um, as they're, quite frankly, going out into the world and hopefully choosing a church somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I start the whole thing off by having my uh, Roman Catholicism and my five mainline denominations, Anglican, Baptist, Methodist, um, Presbyterian and Lutheran, and it's a pretty um, primitive kind of PowerPoint, but I have them all lined up. I have them boxed into this box. I said they're all inside Christianity, but now I put them into rows and they go sliding across the row. Mm-hmm. And I say, now you're, what you're going to find is that there is also a continuum in most of these churches of a more liberal and a more conservative side. Now I say that with a caveat that I hate those terms mm-hmm. unless we can agree on what they mean. Right. But look at this chart. Now, if you're a conservative uh, Lutheran, on some topics you may be more uh, aligned with conservative Presbyterians mm-hmm. or conservative Catholics, and on other topics you're more aligned across the line with, uh, with others in your denomination. And then I said all these movements, these common denominator movements, are happening on the conservative side of, this, of the grid because on the liberal side, they never figure they're supposed to get along anyway or, or agree. You know, part of their strength, they would say, is we, we don't tell you what to believe. I mean, if you want to go whole hog on that, go to a Unitarian church. Mm. The worst thing you can do in a Unitarian church is tell people, here's what to believe. The journey is, what is mm. what's important. And I have to say, I love it. Sometimes, you know, I tell them, go to churches and groups if this kind of unnerves you. So when I get two or three pastors, daughters especially, who went to like a Unitarian church mm-hmm. in Mequon, they were just talking about that for weeks. Mm. I can't believe that this is the way it was in church, you know. My dad wouldn't do it that way. Well, it's a big world out there, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, so I think part of this is just to try to explain the quilt. Yeah, a quilt's a good way to yeah, describe yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And there's historical things in all of them, right, that 
twists and turns that go all over the place. You know, I, I, I like to think of, you know, when the Missouri Senate came over, the, the ship that had like their vestments and their appointments apparently sunk. Right. And so they came over and they didn't have, you know, that maybe it'll look differently if they had kind of their fancy stuff. Right. They, uh, you know, they may have been uh, seen by their uh, uh, fellow Christians in uh, St. Louis and Perry County as even more Roman Catholic. Right. If they, yeah. Yeah, they had that kind of stuff. So there's all sorts of twists and turns there, too. You don't think that Mulehäuser was down at the docks the night before they left drilling a bunch of holes in the hull of the ship because <laughs> he said we're not having that, that stuff that's right that's right what uh maybe mark something interesting to me would be uh you know america's an america's a kind of special petri dish for religion and often we see especially even in the religions that you've mentioned uh in our recording so far today peculiarly American kind of developments that take place. Um, do you see any commonalities in the, not necessarily the doctrines in every instance of these developments, um, but, you know, we, you've gone from Pentecostalism to Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, the Church of Oprah, that you'll be getting to anything. What, what makes America such fertile ground for these things, or is there anything particularly American, that we see in these developments. Yeah, actually, that comes before all of this because the first couple of lessons are about studying religion in an academic versus a devotional way. And I say, you probably have had devotional study of religion, many of you, all your life. And what I mean by that is your teacher believes as you do. They want you to believe the same way. Mm -hmm. And there's not a big plug for diversity. They don't want that. And you know, you're desperately trying to learn. I shouldn't say that, although when you're a seminary senior, you do want to get it right. You're trying to learn the right answers to everything. Oh. But classes like this are quite popular in American colleges and universities, but it's a totally academic approach. In other words, the teacher himself may be agnostic or doesn't say what he is, and you're just learning about it. But then we talk a little bit about religion in American life, and I look at the, you know, the statements in the Constitution and the origin of the statement separation of church and state and this concept of American um, um, co not not common religion, but um, it's kind of a, a I can't think of the word now. Where it, there's a religious element to being American, and you've got your saints. I put Mount Rushmore up, and then I say, well, which president should we add to the second hill here? <laughs> should we put Roosevelt on? Should we put Clinton on? And um, and 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 then when we talk about the first denominations, I always take a little time talking about how does that group look at its relationship to the state. <laughs> and and to the government and of course two kingdoms is the hardest to explain but when you see what what calvin tried to do in geneva yep. and i said you know it depends on who you read on this some people think that was a great experiment that worked well and a lot of others think that did not go well but that impulse to want to have church and state as a holy commonwealth you're going to see showing up all through so many of the protestant denominations and um and, and so there is this sense that people want freedom of religion but they would like the, 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 the state to be kind of on their side. And so Lutherans look like they're disinterested when actually they're saying, don't, don't mix up the kingdoms on us. Yeah. What, um, maybe as well, just the, the fact that, and you maybe covered this earlier in the course, but for listeners who are, um, kind of sticking their ear in to get some free college, uh, you don't get credit listeners, but unless no. you, to see what we do. Unless you pay, we probably yeah. need some We'll money. take your money, but yeah. no, no, what no. about just 
the American marketplace that maybe lends itself to these developments, or does that not really play in? No, just I that think we're a people that we're we're a people that are used to having choices. Yeah, well, I think you go back into the let's say the uh, time of the first and second Great Awakening, and the early times of the Republic. So the concept of voluntarism was hard for a lot of a lot of churches to you know churches understand and people to, but the people were kind of ahead of the churches in some ways and so you have little towns maybe you had one your wife might have had one in Houstonsford that was yeah. church church street and so they want to have everybody start on an equal plane and they're all like 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 it's a grocery counter and you can pick and some of the denominations really caught on to this i mean the growth that the methodist church did between let's say the revolution the civil war is unbelievable I mean, I can't do the math correctly, but it's like in the 140,000 huh. percent. And other churches like, like Lutherans and Catholics kind of held on to the view of, we'll come and gather our own and they'll expect us to be there. The, they're used to the church in the middle of the village. And, and, Which is and why in those circles you'll still hear parish used a lot. Yeah. And you won't yeah. hear that used almost at all in many other groups. This notion of, here's the Lutheran or the Catholic church in this area. Yeah. And that's just the one people will go to because that's our church in this area. Right. I think that's died off somewhat, unfortunately, in some ways, unfortunately, um, in that you now will have people who will drive by four, five, six churches of their own denomination to find the one yeah. that they prefer. But but I think that's just choice on a higher, more refined level. So, I mean, we have our own Missouri and Wisconsin church fathers bitterly complaining about the Methodists for how aggressive they were. Yeah. They'd stand outside the Lutheran church after the service and grab people by the hand and try to pull them into their church. But they were more aggressive that way. Yeah. And, you know, so then some of my students and some of our church members say, what was wrong with us Lutherans that we were so passive? And I said, they had their hands full up to their neck and Germans getting off the boat. Yeah. So cut them some slack on that. And then... By the time of World War One, we had a lot of pastors who wanted to do it, but they were really nervous about what kind of awful things they would inadvertently say because they just didn't handle English very well. It yeah. took a while. But that whole concept of choice is then refined and magnified in what we have today. And I'll, I'll tell them what anxiety I go through trying to find a new pair of blue jeans. I said, I go to the store and I get so confused with all the different choices. Sometimes, a couple times I've left not knowing what to get. But we're so used to choice as a culture that we're used to seeing churches of all different types and sometimes not so different, but just slight differences in practice or doctrine right across the street from each other. Now, you could say that denominationalism has really confused people. But on the other hand, I personally would rather have choice than to have to go to the only church in town if I, if I thought it was really wrong. And, of course, the Catholic argument always is, you didn't make things any better by starting all these denominations. I mean, we weren't perfect, but at least there was one church. Now you've got churches on every corner, and they're each saying the other three are wrong. I mean, that's the story of Joseph Smith, you know, mm -hmm. that he was in Palmyra, New York. And you can, you can go to that church corner, that street corner, or the, the four churches, and it just he just agonized. Which one is right? He huh. couldn't understand. So he, he needed to have a direct experience from God, and he says he had one. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the choice is, 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 it's a very big thing. And I mean, to think that churches are doing focus groups and opinion polls to find out what to do. Uh, and along those lines, um, regarding the marketplace and choice, so people choosing specific churches, what about how that influence, what people are looking for in a church, how that maybe has changed over time and enabled um, some of the developments that you've talked about as well, right? The... The Church of Oprah, um, if we can speak that way, 
would have made no sense in, you know, 16th, 17th century <laughs> Europe of, you know, what would you, um, what, yeah, what about you, eight what, different levels that would have been true. Yeah, yeah. What do you think it has contributed to shifts or have there been shifts of what people are looking for in a religion that these are the types of things that we see developing? And I, I mean, Mormonism, as you mentioned, um, we wouldn't put them within the, the sphere of Christianity. They're not a, a creedal church. They, um, Obviously, their Christology is, is not very good. Um, but uh, there's aspects of Mormonism that are particularly suited for an American setting. It, it's it's family-focused. It's patriotic. It's um, What do you think uh, has shifted in what Americans are looking for in religion? And I guess, how do you address with your students, um, who I'm guessing have impulses as well of what they're looking for? Or they've been conditioned, even if they've been brought up wells their whole life, well, they've been conditioned to want from religion what wells offers. How do, how do you address any of that? Well, I think that's older than we think, too. You talk, we've been talking about the decline of the mainline churches. But if you go back to the early 1800s, they would have said that too, but then it was all these Methodists and Baptists running around doing emotional uh, calls to decision and, and you know, the, 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 the anxious bench and the having all the wild religion and all that. Uh, now, they've become more tame. In fact, American religion can be sort of illustrated by how the upstart groups get developed, get more tame, get professional clergy, and become more mainstream. But their selling point was they would say, the Methodists said this, I forget which Methodist revivalist it was, maybe it was Moody. One of them said, I know less theology than a jackrabbit knows about ping pong. And they saw it as their strength that they didn't go off to seminary and mm -hmm. learn the languages and become separate from their people, but they were blacksmiths and cobblers and farmers and shopkeepers, and they talk the same language that their people did. And so I think the desire to have something that's practical and... Um, egalitarian. In egalitarian, down-to-earth uh, to a degree. And, and, and so what have you got? You've got the evangelical preacher coming out with ripped blue jeans on, and he's, he's using everyday language. In fact, sometimes I think they even talk down. Mm -hmm. and use a few more gunas and warrants and ain'ts mm -hmm. that they wouldn't speak that way ordinarily, but they'll show that they're real folks. And so, and I, and I, and I tell them, depending on how the discussion goes, there's always a, a, a sort of a dilemma that pastors have. How much do I give them the message the way they say to wanna, they want to hear it? And how much do I need to have them learn certain terminology, mm -hmm. have them understand certain distinctions. And you can see it right across the board and the people that are sitting in front of me. I have a higher percentage of students now who are right of center, certainly politically, and also theologically, and they will want more liturgy. They will you know, enjoy the confessions. I mean, uh, the number of people that do the sign of the cross when they come to the chapel is a wholly different thing here than it was 30 years ago. Mm -hmm we were considered as almost anti-clerical on this campus and not anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that's a generational thing that changes from generation to generation, I would say. Because um, in our synod, I would have thought 10 years ago that the church and change movement would become stronger and stronger. And that hasn't happened. And um, so it, it, is a, it is a kind of a, I hope for most students it's kind of a, a microcosm of the a living laboratory of American religion. I always have a few that who are just totally confused. Mm -hmm. And when you think about 
the un lack of familiarity that some students come in with. And they will tell us, I, I knew nothing about this until I came in. And so what is their acquaintance with any uh, church or religious body going to be except highly experiential and maybe prejudicial too. The experience they had was bad. And uh, so some of that's going on. And so they go to visit church services. They do a, a reading and write a report. And I'm astounded sometimes at the amount of stuff they tell me. Very confessional, very honest. And I'll always tell them, thank you for trusting me to, to say this to me. Even, you know, some of our own who are saying, this is how I grew up. This is what I was taught. But I don't know. <laughs> now let me, can, I, can I go in a different direction? Is sure, that okay? yeah. Oh, you so, watch the clock, too. Yeah, we got, we got a little time here. Um, so I, uh, I've been um, watching Ken Burns baseball right now. Um, because PBS has been has been grateful of uh, putting that on. We we have some microphone problems here. here. Okay, like, yeah. you know what I'm, I'm talking about. You, yeah, like Pull it forward. They weren't they weren't okay. <laughs> they weren't trying to muzzle me. That's, that's okay. Right, that's Dr. Right. Brown is slowly. Uh, what do you call that? What you do that? Lassoing Lasso himself with his. Oh, well. um, so uh, you're good now. Now that we Thank don't you. we don't have it's springtime. We don't have baseball. Ken Burns uh, talked to PBS and said, "Put this on for free." The the old documentary on baseball. Oh, really? And I and I watched that many many years ago and. And so now that uh, we put some long hours in here and I haven't been taking too much work at home, some, some other work for other churches, but I've been, I've been watching one of these. And, and what is remarkable, what, you know what I've been doing, Mike, praying for our country, <laughs> Ken Burns, what's remarkable about his, his documentary on baseball is he, he does tie it with the history. So the, the history of baseball is the history of America. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to see racial tensions. You're going to see economic things. You're going to see class warfare. You're going to see uh, all the negative things, but also some of the greater things that we we have. A, the yeah. college football thing on ESPN was yeah, really different too. Like, and so I, I just wonder if um, the history <laughs> of religion in America is also the history of America. And so can you pinpoint, like I'm thinking right away, um, you have these European uh, churches come over. So you have the Anglican church and Lutheran church or whatever. And very quickly they have to decide, you know, in the revolutionary times, okay, how do we detach ourselves from these European father churches, right? Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, the Anglicans are now called Episcopalians. They're on their own and that changes things. And I, I'm willing to bet that every decade you could go through and say, this happened in the church it also happened to the culture, right? I mean, mm -hmm. do, you, do you have a feeling, do you have maybe some examples there that we say, um, well, you know, segregation, right? Uh, that's a wonderful, great thing. That's a wonderful, great thing that we got that, got rid of that. And yet we still have segregation, you know, Sunday morning is, is one of the most segregated and we see that politically, right? We do, you talked about, uh, you know, the, the scandal of uh, particularity and, and, and um, we shouldn't divide ourselves by uh, denominations, but we just replaced one way of division with another way of division, right? We have mm -hmm. left-leaning churches and right-leaning churches, that kind of thing. So any insight on the history of America and the history of the church? Well, I think you could almost go decade by decade. Let me, uh, let me start in the years before the Civil War and how that divided some of the churches. And uh, some churches experienced splits over slavery that weren't healed until the middle of the 20th century. And so that that was that affected you regionally, but it also both sides found their passages to to prove what they wanted to say, and some saw it as a matter of obedience to to your, to, to the authorities and ma uh, your masters, and others 
the citizen for freedom that Christ has made you free. You, you get into the late 1800s and you have the whole robber baron age and the, uh, uh, the Gilded Age where people, many of whom went to wonderful Presbyterian and Catholic churches, felt that um, they were kind of wealthy by divine right and, mm -hmm. and social Darwinism. But then there was the reaction to that with what was then called the social gospel and the concern about the poor. And um, uh, the YMCA comes y out of that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then early 20th century, um, you have churches making more social statements about being for or against war. And should the church be involved in in uh, political statements? I mean, that's quite a study just across the mm -hmm. Lutheran churches. Sure. Uh, the um, the historians that I know that are part of the Lutheran Historical Conference that are in the ELCA, they have a long history of social ministry statements that have come out of the old LC and the ELC. And they love writing about this stuff. Now, in a certain sense, I think it's avoidance behavior because it's more about social issues than about doctrine sometimes. And they sometimes assume the doctrine. But um, others of us, more on the Missouri-Wisconsin side, said we're just, we're just not so sure mm -hmm. that that's what the church as church should be involved with. When the uh, March on Selma happened in early 1965, and there were lots of clergy going across that bridge, our Northwestern Lutheran magazine got a letter that asked, where were our pastors mm -hmm. at Selma? And professor, I won't give his name, but our professor gave all the standard reasons that we learned why we sh shouldn't be involved in that. And that was just not pleasing some people yeah. at some points. Yeah. And so there are those kinds of debates. I mean, abortion has been involved. Um, Same-sex marriage has been involved. Women's ordination and the women's movement. Um, spirituality as this kind of vague sense of something beyond or something other. Um, so, yeah, you could chart that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, there's a... And then the lesson is, how are we doing that right now for for better or worse, right? It's hard for us in our own context to say how much maybe we are more of the culture than we actually admit, right? Um, you know, I, I would say to my, uh, said to my uh, parishioners, like, um, most of you are American first, Lutheran second, and I think that's very un-American, <laughs> right? I mean, America's kind of like, you can be what your religion is, and, 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 and let's be honest here that you are, you are American, and a particular type of American, whatever that may be, and you happen to be Lutheran, and I don't know if that's always healthy, um, to, to kind of think these things through a little bit. You know, did you choose your church because this is the culture of who you are and how you vote, or did you do it because this is, you know, the, this is the right, you feel that this is the right confession for you? Right? Yeah, one of the phrases you'll find in textbooks, and I'll bring it up sometimes, is, is the church culture affirming or culture opposing? And, and I'll ask them, um, how many of you had parents who forbade you from watching The Simpsons? And of course, most of the hands go up. And I say, well, that's really unfortunate because The Simpsons tried very hard to paint accurate, at least caricatures, of a lot of different religious persuasions. And so I would encourage you to make up for this loss by watching as many Simpson episodes <laughs> as you can. But, you know, they could picture the Catholic priest and they could picture the sort of secular Jew and the Hindu at the convenience shop and the evangelical. Ned Flanders is such a good portrait of an evangelical. But it would be tricky to have a Lutheran character mm -hmm. on The Simpsons because we just blend in so much. So our our willingness to go along with the culture, this kind of 
quietism is something which Lutherans have always been either praised for or, or, or scolded or for. You know, yeah. People like Robert Benny and, and um, Mark Knoll say we've got some particular strengths that yeah. way, that we don't jump on every fad initially. Yeah. But others will say, yeah, we, 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 we don't care enough about that. We, we back off too much. Yeah. Um, and, and this, this, this uh, feature of being opposed to culture and feeling that a good Christian should stand out, I sometimes call it the syndrome of, I must be a prophet. They're stoning me. <laughs> uh, this, shows, this shows my genuineness. Yeah. And others of us would say, well, you know, Look at the difference between Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was an outlaw. He was on the run all of his life. Elisha worked the inside, and he was around three times as long. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I mean, what's what's the role you have here? Yeah. What, uh, I guess just my the last question coming to mind for me is, <clears throat> so we've talked about people may have various things they're looking for in religion. These may be culturally informed. Um, these are academic theology classes we're teaching what is the role or a benefit in academic theology and helping people come to a better grips for what they ought to look for in religion if they are looking for, for one? Um, I know with world religions, for instance, Mark, you will present with each of them the problem that the mm-hmm. religion presents and then the, uh, the answers. And to what extent is uh, it necessary to go beyond academic theology from a confessional perspective? Uh, to teach people what they ought to be looking for in a in a sense, right? This is a, the law must awaken within them the, the problems that, that we're facing, I suppose. Um, but it's it's one thing, right? We instruct in the beliefs of the different groups or their practices. How do you see, uh, and I, I think this applies in catechesis, this applies in evangelism, but this also applies just in, being able to have reasonable discourse about religion with others. Um, how do we, is there a, even an academic sense in which as you st- as we study these things, we see core concerns that ought to arise in people's minds as they, they look at things? Well, my number one goal, and I tell them this um, very openly, in this class is that I want you to have a kind of a grid develop in your head so that you see why certain religions fit the way they do. Where, where would you, if, if a group believes this or does this, where do they fit? Because I'm a strong believer in the, uh, the sort of mental tree approach to, to, to learning, that you can hear something a hundred times, and you understand it every time you hear it, and then you put it somewhere and don't, you don't recognize again, unless you know where to hang it. So I said, when you look at the, the, the history and, and the growth of religious groups in America, they fall into certain categories. And the one that I don't know where to put is Scientology. It does not fit. It's got a closet like all by itself because of its combination of things. But you start to see that religious groups behave the way they do and say what they do because of the history that brought them there. So let's say you you, you get into the Calvinist-Arminian disagreement in early Protestantism, which they brought over here, and it's it's cross-pollinated and it's uh, refined. And Lutherans were kind of out of the picture because our languages were different and because we had a firmer confessional statements. But then there's also sense, well, how Calvinist are we? I mean, do, some, do we agree with some of these things? Do we, do we uh, agree with Arminians on some of these things? And, and I will say often the beginning of a, 
of a heretical teaching is an overemphasis on one truth to the neglect of others. So Calvin was so concerned with God's sovereignty that he lost the value of faith and, you know, uh, things like that. So that, and, and I say, you know, you're not, we're, we're not going to have healthy understanding of our own religion or healthy conversations with other people if we only have a kind of a, a caricatured or even uh, accusatory mode. I said, I think in our synod and maybe in other church bodies too, there's a long thread of what we don't agree with or understand we tend to ridicule without attempting to, to try to understand it. And that doesn't equip us to have any real life encounters very well with, with actual people to talk about it when we do that. So I, I, I will try to be as honest and even where I can be admiring of certain features of other denominations, even where I, I will say, well, here's why I don't agree. Now, <laughs> I'm almost afraid I'm a little too successful sometimes. I remember one student emailed me at the end of the semester and says, you know, I don't think you're a Christian anymore, <laughs> and I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> and he took another class, though, with me the next semester. He says, well, I think you're a Christian again, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> but but um, And I had to consider the, cons the source. He was really concerned about me. But I mean the fact that they are even hearing something which is explanatory and I hope they feel fair about people or groups that they have heard nothing but kind of quick dismissals. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're about at time, so uh, thanks for coming on, Mark, and uh, hopefully your students will, will benefit from this kind of review, and hopefully our listeners will be intrigued by it and come back and listen uh, again. So uh, thanks for listening. Those of you out there, uh, stay safe, and until the next time, let the bird fly.